Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. There is nothing permanent except change, is a quote from Greek philosopher Heraclitus, best known for his doctrine of change being central to the universe. I thought this was an apt quote for our guest today. In a period where we, as a society, are experiencing and witnessing change on a multitude of fronts, our guest is at the helm of a leading organisation with 120 years of operations in Australia, in an industry that plays an important role across all facets of life. Our guest is Scott White, Chief Executive Officer of Viva Energy Australia, supplying a quarter of the country's liquid fuel energy requirements across different industries and through an extensive network of 1,300 service stations throughout Australia. Following a long career with Shell in New Zealand, Australia and Singapore, Scott was appointed CEO of Viva Energy Australia in 2014. He is a director of the Australian Institute of Petroleum and previously served on the board of Viva Energy REIT. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite, world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in France, New Zealand and the Netherlands, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blender Partners, Executive Search and Board Advisory. Positioned in an industry vital to keeping the economy moving forward, from transport, mining and manufacturing to everyday Australians just getting to work, Scott shares with us the rich history and evolution of Viva Energy and how they are positioning themselves for the future. He brings to the fore the significant role leadership plays in navigating uncertainty and addressing the challenges of our time especially now as we embark on a monumental transition that will change the way we live. So sit back and enjoy a period of great change. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. Scott, in 10 years' time, what's Viva Energy going to look like? Uh, A lot different than it does today. One of the things I talk to my organisation about, given the industry that we're in, is that uh, We've been around for an awful long time, uh, and our business has been in Australia for 120 years now. And uh, in that 120 years, actually, what we do today is pretty similar to what we did 120 years ago. Fundamentally, you know, we we uh, take crude oil and we refine it and turn it into petrol, diesel, jet, and uh, other products. And uh, obviously, the way the way we go about it has changed quite a bit in that time. But fundamentally, that's that's still what we do, and obviously, supply energy to 
people to get around and businesses to do what they do. But uh, fast forward 10 years, mm. it's going to change dramatically. You know, so the change in the next 10 years will be much more significant than the last 120 years. That's kind of the, the pace, I think, that we're heading into in, in terms of energy. We'll still be selling a lot of the products that we sell today in 10 years' time because the transition will take uh, to new energies take take a long time, but it'll be fundamentally uh, in play in the next decade. And uh, obviously the challenge for our business is to how do we adapt to that and how do we play a meaningful role in that transition? That's top and front of my mind. And uh, uh, it's a challenge, but it's also an amazing opportunity as well. And uh, you know, because of the business we're in and the relationships that we have with customers and, and the, the big role we play in people's lives, we actually can play a meaningful role in that transition. And that's what kind of excites me about the next decade. And is it true, something like 40% of all energy in this country is used is is actually oil? Is that yeah, oil. So obviously coal and gas um, play a big role getting converted, or coal certainly getting converted into electricity, which is yep. what the energy people will be familiar with. But fundamentally, those are the sort of the energies that drive the economy. And so still a very meaningful part of that energy mix and, and very important to everything we do, basically, uh, in the country, whether it's you know, getting to school, going to work, going on holiday, operating businesses, mining, yep. flying, yep. marine, a whole range of different segments. Uh, our products find their way into making things move, essentially. Are we smart as a nation? You know, we don't have a lot of refineries in this country. Um, you look at sovereign risk, I, I guess. It's been debated a number of times, but now from your expertise as someone who spent a lifetime in this sector, what, what are your general thoughts? Look, I think the thing about energy is it requires a lot of planning. I mean, the, the energies that are created today have resulted from significant investments over a long period of time. And you make those investments with a, a long-term horizon. Um, you know, most of our investment horizon is, you know, 10 to 20 years or beyond. And if you're in, in the upstream game and exploring, it's much longer than that. So um, having a very long-term clear policy framework about where the country wants to go, which obviously gets driven by by government. And in an energy game, it's both federal and state governments that have a big role to play in that. It's absolutely critical to getting the right outcomes, not for business, but for what the country needs in that time. Now, I think over the years, we've had actually across both sides of government, very good, consistent energy policy frameworks. But with the rate of change now around energy transition and the different uh, perspectives that people have around the pace that that change needs to occur, I think some of that long-term planning has has fallen away. Yep. And we've, we, you know, we find ourselves in a place that we'd probably rather we weren't as a country today. Um, yep. But where we find ourselves today is all goes back to decisions that were made you know, many years ago. Um, so one of the challenges that government has is is getting back in front of that policy framework, getting a clear view about where we want to be, how quickly we want to get there, mm -hmm. the sorts of investments that need to go, and what's practical and realistic around this transition as well, uh, and getting a, a clear agenda back in place with industry so that we can move forward in a more planned, sensible way and avoid the the sorts of disruptions that we're seeing today and certainly in the, in the electricity and gas markets in Australia. Well, we've got a new government, a new federal government in, what do you think they're going to play? Do you think they're going to be a little bit more engaging than the previous government? Look, I mean, I found the previous government very engaging. I mean, we obviously went through some some very challenging times okay. um, through COVID yep. in, in our business, I mean, yep. uh, mostly revolving around the refining business. And if you can imagine in the midst of COVID, suddenly you're not selling any jet fuel because planes aren't flying. Yes. You're selling half the amount of petrol that you sold before because people can't go to work or can't leave their houses. Yeah. Um, and you're trying to run a refinery – 
that literally the way it runs is it has to run flat out, but you've got nowhere to sell the products that it makes. And you can't just suddenly stop making jet fuel or stop making gasoline or petrol because that's what comes out of a barrel of crude. Yep. Where do you put it? Yep. Suddenly you're your tanks are full up and you've got really hard choices to make yeah. um, about you know, slowing down or shutting down your refinery and uh, and that you know that was uh, a significant challenge for us through through COVID and uh, right at the very beginning uh, certainly I was a pretty strong voice that you know this was going to be potentially uh, the end of refinery sector in Australia if we couldn't find a way forward to sustain the losses that the sector would face through COVID and, and come out of it with a refinery sector still intact. And uh, and so that was a conversation that we had with uh, the government of the day and, and they were very receptive to that. And, you know, Minister Taylor particularly you know, picked up that that challenge and worked very closely with industry to, to try and protect or find a way to see uh, a level of refinery capability maintained after the pandemic, recognising it's a pretty key, plays a pretty key role in the country's energy Absolutely. security. So, you know, I think the previous government, um, you know, certainly my experience was very clear on the importance of of energy and particularly this, the role that we played. And and I think um, uh, I expect the current government to, to do exactly the same. And certainly we had really good dialogue with, with Labor through that period of time as well. Okay. The outcome that we got with government for the sector was very bipartisan and yep. I expect that to continue. And obviously there's challenges that have emerged more broadly, as I said before, around gas and electricity that the new government has to now navigate. But um, my sense is they understand the challenges and hopefully that will result in some in some better policy frameworks going forward. The prices at the Bowser aren't low, are they? No, they're high and they've been sustained high. Uh, for a, a long period of time, um, and obviously we've got an excise uh, reduction that's got to come back in, so they yeah. could go higher again, and it's yeah. a massive impact on consumers, a uh, massive impact on on businesses. Couple that with rising gas and electricity prices and, and energy costs are a real issue for the economy, I think, more generally. Where do you think it's going to be in the next three, four years, and how much do you put down to Mr. Putin and, and the Russians? Oh, I think a lot of it has been amplified with the the conflict that's occurred in Ukraine and the disruption that's resulted in energy markets more generally. I mean, it's clearly still a, a very active conflict in country, but it's just as much an economic conflict. And, and in terms of economic, it's really an energy conflict. I yeah. mean, that's the game that's being played and uh, it's high stakes and it's uh, it's demonstrated, I think, to everybody, if you had any doubt, that energy security is absolutely fundamental to every country. The role that we play, in terms of my company plays in providing energy security, you know, I'm really proud of that. And uh, it was a bit why we fought so hard to to retain the refinery capacity that we contribute to to Australia's energy security. I'm just watching the impact in the US at the moment. It's uh, pretty staggering, isn't it? You see you know, the prices and the inflation uh, as a result. You're going to think that there's going to be some some real rethinking in later in the year when they have the, the vote again. What are your thoughts around you know, the lessons we can learn from what Mr. Biden and the team are doing compared to what we could do to here. Is there anything we can do or we just quite frankly are, are receptive of the global play? It depends on the, the energy you're, you're talking about. I think certainly in, in terms of oil and the products that we yep. sell, I mean, as a result of refinery closures progressively over years and certainly two, two refineries closing through COVID, yes. um, we're down to up to 80% of our requirements are now imported from overseas. So yes. we're, we're, we're yeah. a price taker to what's happening uh, within the world, the globe, um, you know, we're dependent on overseas refinery for a large proportion of our fuel now. That's that's just the reality we we face into. 
to put a positive spin on it, we yep. still have we still have twenty percent refining capacity in Australia, and that allows us to process you know local Indigenous crude. We process probably a third of our crude comes from local sources. Um, so that's a level of self sufficiency that gets inbuilt. Crude tends to come from different places than refined fuel. Refined fuel comes from overseas refinery. Crude oil, of course, comes from production fields around the region and then around the world. So that diversity of supply gives you a bit more energy security. Uh, and so we've got to retain that capacity, in my view. And obviously, we've committed with government to continue refining till mid-2028. Uh, it's a great outcome. Saw that. Great outcome for a business, but I think great outcome for the country as well. And as a result of that, we're going to invest in improving our processing capabilities. So you know, I think that's all positive for uh, at least retaining the sort of element of energy security that we contribute at the moment. Gas and electricity, it's a bit driven by what's happening globally and demand for, obviously strong demand for gas now, but it's also very much a local story too around where gas is in Australia, where it's consumed, there are different places, how do you move from one to the other and uh, and obviously the interplay between gas and coal and electricity production as well. So I think there's a lot we can do in country to you know, to improve that situation and the last couple of months have probably demonstrated the urgent need to do that. Scott, for those who are out there who don't really understand or don't know a lot about fever energy, could you share some, some insight and maybe educate us all on what you what you guys do. Viva Energy is essentially what was the Shell downstream business in Australia. So that includes a refinery at Geelong um, that processes you know crude oil and turns it into fuels like petrol and diesel and jet that we use. That supplies about half of Victoria's fuel requirements to put it in context. Okay. We then have around twenty import terminals around the country that we import fuel from overseas because the refinery doesn't supply all of our markets. Um, and so those terminals are pretty much dotted around the coastline of Australia and allow us to supply virtually every part of the country with fuel. We operate the Shell branded retail network, which everyone will be very familiar with. We have about 700 sites there that are operated in partnership with Coles. Okay. And then we, we supply fuels and other hydrocarbon products like lubricants and solvents and bitumen to commercial customers uh, in various different segments, the main ones being mining, aviation, we have about 50, presence at about 50 airports around the country, uh, marine, which includes container shipping and um, cruise liner business as well, uh, construction, which is predominantly you know, supply of bitumen and, and hydrocarbon solvents, and so and road transport, so buses right. and trucks, etc. So pretty much every segment, sector and commercial sector in Australia private motorists and um, and a combination of imported products and fuels that we make here in, here in Australia at the refinery. So supply about 25% of the country's liquid fuel requirements right. and uh, it was a business that Shell had developed over you know 100 years, 100 plus years in Australia, one of the first oil companies to, to be here. They made a decision in 2014 to sell the downstream business. I mean, I, I started my career with Shell in New Zealand. Whilst I was working in Australia, they sold the business in New Zealand because they decided it was a market that had limited growth for them and they had calls for the cash and other different parts of their business. Yes. Same, same sort of logic for Australia as well. Yep. At that stage, I was running, I was the head of downstream for Shell in Australia, so I, I was sort of on the sell side of that transaction, yes. um, which is a kind of an amazing Amazing time for me back in 2013, 2014, and trying to lead a business through 
uh, divestment, uh, which is hugely uncertain Absolutely. for people, uh, yeah. uncertain for me in terms of what my future is going to look like, yep. my entire team and obviously the whole organisation, but at the same time sitting across the room from potential buyers and talking about the business and why it was a good business to buy. I actually, funnily enough, you know, if you're reflecting back on it, I remember leading up to that, spending a lot of time trying to convince Shell not to sell the business in Australia because okay. I felt so passionately that about the future of the, the company and it was the wrong decision for Shell to take. Looking back on it with the, the opportunity that I've had since then to, to lead the business post-sale um, and do all the things we've done, I, mean, I must have been crazy trying to convince them to do that because it's been a wonderful ride ever since. But uh, that's how you know, connected I was with the company. So I went through the sale process fully expecting, to be honest, to probably not have a job at the end of it because it was going to private owners. They'd bring someone else in and yep. I'd go do something else. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, through that through that process, got asked by the successful bidders for the business, which was a, a consortium led by VTOL yep. to stay on as a CEO, um, and uh, which I did, and ran the business for them as a private company um, through till 2018 when we eventually listed the company. Um, VTOL, the VTOL consortium still has 45%. Of the shares, the other fifty-five percent are in, in public hands, and and mostly with a a small group of quite large hold investors, so very you know long-term supporters of the company, and got good relationships with them, and obviously the rest being you know, retail and international. So, um, if you think about my journey, you know, and the company's journey really is is moving from a, a part of a big global multinational, very successful company Absolutely. to. To private hands and then public ownership. That's the the journey that we've been on. We still largely do what we have always done, and but we've you know we've continued to add to the business, and we've got a a strategy to take each of our three our businesses forward in different areas. Partly around energy transition, just partly around continued diversification and growth, and uh, that's a, a strategy that we've sort of developed over the last few years. As uh, uh, and you know that's. Coming out of COVID, that's our, our real priority now is getting on with that and, and really starting to, to play into a, a very exciting next 10 years, if you like, and, and you know, taking the business in different directions. And as a CEO, are you enjoying it as a, in the listed environment? It's different. I mean, I think uh, you know, I found the transition from multinational to public to private very different and, and very challenging because it was a completely different environment for me. You were disconnecting our company here from the rest of the group, yeah. creating a really Australian-centric organisation. Yep. That required quite a lot of organisational change in the early days, which was necessary but very difficult. And and getting to know new owners who, you know, most private owners are quite involved. So, you know, more involved than certainly I've been used to yep. as being part of the Shell group. But then taking it through to public and then mm. having the whole new set of stakeholders being other investors um, and uh, the, the general public profile that comes from running a public company, another very different and challenging transition. But, you know, my career, every, those sorts of times when you're feeling uncomfortable and a bit out of your depth in some ways is the time where you really do grow the most and and uh, because you're, you know, you're having to overcome those things and the more you do it, the easier it gets and, and the more you start to enjoy it. And so every time, every through all those changes, I took it with both hands and made the most of it and have, have loved it. It's been a fabulous uh, 10 years. What do you think of the whole, I guess you've got a number of perspectives on, on renewables, are we? And obviously it's the discussions day in and day out and we're seeing all sorts of plays in that space, locally and internationally. Are we moving too fast? Are we moving at the right pace? 
You're an expert. What do you think? There's nothing to stop us moving as quickly as possible in terms of creating renewable capability. So whether it's you know improving solar and wind-powered electricity generation, whether it's investing and progressing the development of hydrogen for you know certainly in our case we're focusing on heavy heavy vehicles. But I think you want to push that as quickly as as possible and invest in proven technologies that you know can deliver. I think there's nothing to stop us moving as quickly as we can on that. I think that's a good. That's a good challenge, and I think it's good that people keep pushing companies like ours and and others to move more quickly. But you have to also balance that with how quickly you turn off your existing energies as well. And if you turn off your existing energies more quickly than you're developing renewables, then you know, it's not rocket science. You have problems, right? Yeah. And that's what we're caught. that's exactly where we're getting caught. What about the affordability, Scott? Is it is it going to be affordable, or is that still going to take some time as well? I think it depends on the technologies. I mean, obviously, solar is becoming very affordable, but obviously needs to be balanced with you know on demand based supply. Um, that's a bit where we've we get caught. Wind is a bit the same. Hydrogen. Uh, has got some time to go, but you know I think has a clearly very strong potential, and with the level of support that it's getting from both government and and large users, I think it, in time it will become competitive. And obviously, it's one of those things as as you build scale and demand, costs come down. I mean that's just the sort of natural cycle of these costs of investment. So fa- fast forward for a decade, I'm sure it'll be a very competitive source of energy. You reckon in a decade, do you? We do. I mean, we think it'll take time. Um, But in our business, I mean, we sort of see hydrogen as being particularly relevant for heavy vehicles. So what I mean by heavy vehicles is trucks and buses, where if you put a a battery into those vehicles, A, they're heavy, so it has a payload impact. Yes. Um, But B, it's very slow to charge. So if you're running a trucking business, you don't want your truck sitting around for hours on end waiting to be recharged, whereas hydrogen is still an electric vehicle, but instead of carrying a battery, you carry a, a cylinder with hydrogen and that hydrogen gets converted back into into electricity and water. And so that refueling experience is very similar to refueling for diesel or gas today. It's quick and that provides the energy to run your electric truck or your electric bus. So it's really relevant in there and that's kind of where we we see it's also we can play a role because we have the infrastructure on road to be able to reinstall at some of our service stations hydrogen capability utilize the infrastructure and the network that customers already use and make a transition from diesel to hydrogen for those heavy vehicles and and obviously during the transition from a customer perspective is you know no one's going to switch entirely from diesel to hydrogen vehicles in one go, they're going to, it's going to be progressive. So having a blended offer is another way that we can contribute to accelerating that transition and and help in supporting customers and reducing their own emissions as well. So in 10 years' time, if I pulled up to the service station or one of your service stations, what am I going to be seeing? You'll see a lot of what you see today. I think what where the industry is going is you should see a more developed convenience offer. Um, one of the things we learned through COVID is that there's actually a growing and strong demand for people to be able to shop more locally, you know, not have to go to the big boxes and, and, and they'll still do go to the big boxes and they'll buy online, but the ability to 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 buy what they need more locally is growing. And our offerings at our service stations is still relatively limited. So I think that will expand and, and grow over time. People are going to be looking for opportunity options to recharge their electric vehicles. It won't be the primary place that they recharge their electric vehicles. They'll do that mostly at home or okay. Or at the office or at the supermarkets, but when you get caught or you're on the, you know, you're on a road trip, you want to be able to stop somewhere convenient. Obviously, our service stations will play a role in that. 
And I think for some of the main highway sites, at least anyway, where there's strong demand from trucking networks or trucking fleets, you'll see hydrogen as well in that time frame. So it's an evolution. You'll still see a lot of similarities to what you see today, but mm-hmm. it'll be an evolving offer. Um, that that really leverages the strength that we have, which is the fact that we've got in our business, you know, 1,300 yeah. service stations located pretty much not far from wherever you happen to be, and that's the convenience element of what we bring. And if we take that sort of thinking, Scott, compared to other parts of the world, where does Australia sit? Are we ahead of the curve? Are we playing catch-up? We're right on the money? What, what do you, what's your take? In terms of that part of the business, yeah. the retail business, there's some pretty good offerings in Australia already. Um, okay. You know, our offering is not unsophisticated at all. I think it's it's certainly been very successful, but there's there's some more developed offers in markets, in our markets. Certainly uh, in parts of Europe and the US, there's you know even more advanced convenience offerings. So I think we've got examples around the world of where this could head, our mm-hmm. industry could head. But I think what is common across all of the different markets is that we're all making this transition to renewables and how do you make, how do you, sh- you know, blend renewables into your traditional energies that you supply and do that in a sensible way that's relevant for customers and still profitable and, and economic. You're listening to No Limitations with special guest, Scott Wyatt. In our next episode, I sit down with Rachel Newman and Kylie Fraser, founding partners of Flying Fox Ventures. So uh, Flying Fox, uh, first of all, it's a fruit bat that uh, deposits seeds and it helps to germinate seeds. It's also a piece of, you know, children's play equipment, and it's the fastest way to get to, from point A to point B and have a little fun while you're doing it. So uh, we just thought that it evoked both the stage at which we're investing, but also we try and take our work very seriously, but not ourselves too seriously. Be sure to join us on our next episode. And now, back to the show. Where are you from originally? Uh, originally from New Zealand, so from Wellington. Yes, my, my home. And what did mum and dad do? So uh, dad was a surveyor. Uh, land surveyor, and uh, I recall, you know, as a kid growing up, you know, many times out with Dad with the the survey staff and helping him do his job a little bit. And so I spent a lot of time uh, seeing some of the workplaces that he used to to work on. One of the sort of defining things I think in terms of Dad's career is he he became quite senior in the organisation. He didn't become partner; it was a partnership and. And eventually he got to the, the point, and it must have been in his 40s, I suppose, where he got a bit frustrated with the politics of a partnership and and made the decision to leave work and go and work for himself and do some property development because obviously he'd learned a lot about property over the years. So um, that was quite a big change. And it's one of the, you know, certainly one of the things that I remember probably the most it was that that transition. Mum was always quite entrepreneurial. She was always yeah. trying to find ways to to make things and make money, and she eventually opened up a, a chain of, um, of florists in, okay. in Wellington. So yep. they were both sort of working for themselves at that point in time. My girlfriend then wife ended up working in the in the florist business All right. as well. So it became a bit of a family a family thing. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> and uh, and so it became quite an independent and sort of sort of family, I guess, and uh, very sort of entrepreneurial in, in their own ways. And uh, it must have been a bit of a it must have been a bit of a life change, I guess, because at that about around that time, or maybe shortly after all of that, um, but mum and dad bought a, a sort of lifestyle block. I think it was fifty or hundred acres, I can't remember, of land, and we all sort of became farmers at, just out of Wellington. And uh, I spent most of my high school years and early university years living on the farm and um, spending a lot of time putting fences up, planting trees, you know, managing sheep and goats that we had, and 
I think one of the things which I talk about a lot with um, some of the grads that join the company today is one of the, the things that I was involved in with mum and dad was setting up a rabbit farm. It was kind of my idea. Mum and dad had a lot to do with it, but um, we had a, a farm of about sort of a shed full of about 2,000 rabbits that we were growing for, for rabbit meat. And it was, yeah, right. we used to had a licensed abattoir that got set up and we used to sell them to restaurants in Wellington. It was one of the things that I was doing through my university career and I joined Shell as a graduate shortly after finishing university and uh, when I was doing the interview with the recruiter as we spent the entire time talking about this rabbit farm and sort of walked out of there and, and had the job shortly after because I was so amazed that it was such an entrepreneurial <laughs> thing to do. So I talked to the grads about it today because it was my way of entering the company. Obviously, it's a little bit different different today, but those sorts of experiences that I had both working on a farm and, and getting involved in business at an early age, I think was a sort of a very formative part of of my time and entering, you know, yeah, my, well, the, and entering well, the, my well, career. You're watching mum and dad doing their own business, hard, long hours, long hard hours, work, a lot of risk, a lot of pressure. Uh, yeah, correct. Everything's yeah. on the line. Yeah, all of those things. I think it, yeah, it's kind of taught me that um, opportunities are what you create. They don't just get handed to you. You have to work for them and you have to have the idea and then you've got to follow through and you're never that certain on the outcome, but you have to have some confidence in it and it's what you make of it, right? And uh, yeah, it's a, a work ethic that stayed with me throughout my um, my career. And, and it's the same for my, my brother and sisters. You know, my brother, is he's a property developer. My sister now owns a pretty successful furniture chain in Wellington. And, and my other sister works in that business as well. So that we've all sort of created, you know, quite, I think, quite entrepreneurial careers. I'm probably the, the odd one out in the sense I've followed a, a corporate career. Yeah, it's just a, a corporate what, what made career. you pursue that, that play? <laughs> it was a little bit. Or by accident, to be to be honest, like um, you know, I went to university unsure of what I was going to do because we've been growing up a bit on a farm. I was I was actually I really enjoy being on the land, yep. um, and I was uh, looking to do initially a, pursue a farming career and go and study farming at university because that meant moving out of town. I was probably a bit conservative. Decided and my mates weren't going the same way. I decided not to do that. Then was going to do biology. Um, then found out that that was going to take four years instead of three years to do commerce and there was a whole yeah. lot more contact hours. So I kind of went the lazy way and <laughs> did commerce and, and started working part, you know, in different jobs through university and really enjoyed um, enjoyed working. And um, actually in my third year of university, started working for one of the utility companies full-time and actually finished my last year a bit part-time. Sort of enjoyed it so much, but because it was a bureaucracy, it was a government-owned utility company and um, got frustrated with the pace of things and then ended up applying for a job one night, just getting frustrated with it and it happened to be Shell and happened yep. to to get that role and, and join the energy business essentially and and I just loved it. You know, it's been the most amazing industry to be involved in in the context of obviously the, the role that you play and the, the leverage that you have being in that industry and so important to everybody's lives. Absolutely. But also the variety of jobs that you can do within it because, you know, you're talking about operations, you know, supply chains, marketing, you know, retailing, B2B sales. I mean, I've enjoyed an enormous range of jobs within the same company. And in reality, I've been now with the same company my entire career. So 35 mm -hmm. years on, I went from Shell, had the opportunity to move across to to Viva when the Shell sold the business, but really it's the same company um, for you know a lifer as they as they call it. But that's just the nature of the industry and that that business is it provides enough opportunities to really build that sort of career. Well, it's a multinational, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And but, those dynamics, I guess. Um, I mean, I had a little bit of stint. 
overseas with yes. Singapore, but most of my time, and virtually all my career was in Australia and New Zealand. So to the extent that Australia and New Zealand's international. Yeah, but you're, but you're, <laughs> but you're hearing from different points of view yeah. on a regular basis, I'm sure. Yeah. No, and look, it's a, um, and I think Shockshell is a great organization. I think one of the, one of the things that has kept me beyond the opportunities that I've had in that company has just been the people that I've worked with. I mean, it's quality people. Uh, my organization, the legacy is that it's the same people. And whilst it's been changed, I think the culture and and the, the quality of people that work in the company is uh, is amazing. And that's what I get the biggest kick out of now later in my career is, is just seeing, you know, being able to work with such talented people and see people grow in the company in the same way that experiences that I had as well. So. Yeah, but Scott, what do you reckon got you to the top? Obviously, the work ethics one part, putting your hand up maybe, yeah. taking on assignments, others wouldn't. But what did you look back on thinking, well, that was a good move, that was that was part of my DNA? What what stood out, you reckon? Uh, like anyone's career, a lot of it, at the end of the day, is always a little bit accidental, right place, right time. But you make your, you make your opportunities, yeah, you like I said before. I think, in my experience, you know, the times that I have – Growing the most and and developed and also made, created the most opportunities for me has been when I've been most uncomfortable. So the jobs where I've felt not necessarily ready, it's new and you know and I don't feel comfortable going into it. So I think one of the jobs earlier on in my career that would be the, probably the the best example of that was uh, when one of my my bosses at the time gave me the opportunity to go and run one of our subsidiary companies. And, you know, at, up to that point, I'd only ever led a team of half a dozen people. Yep. All of a sudden, I was going into as the sort of general manager of that subsidiary organization um, with a team of like 300 people, which was includes truck drivers and terminal managers and salespeople and finance, the whole gambit of a, of a company, essentially. Like, and that, that transition was massive for me. But you're suddenly in the hot seat. But I had, I guess, the confidence that I would work it out, and uh, and of course that's what I did. And then, and you make a, a number of mistakes along the way, and you look back on you think, gee, I wouldn't do that again. But uh, you, but that's all part of learning. And as long as you're, you know, reflective enough to look back on the mistakes you make and and obviously learn from it, um, then you you turn out a better leader and you come out of it, and then more more ready for the the next opportunity. And I did that a number of times in my career, and. Uh, and I think that's a big part of where I've got to the opportunity that I've got today. And I think people saw that, right? And in, in the example I gave you was, yeah. was a leader that saw that potential and gave me the opportunity and took a risk. And, and you've got to thank people that do that, right? And, and I always try and remember that with people that work for me. And they just, you know, yes, they might not be ready, but if you know if they've got the innate capability and you've got the confidence in them, give them a shot, right? What's the worst that can happen? Last couple of years have been pretty tough. Like you said earlier on, a lot of thinking, um, reflection, Sales down, people aren't driving their cars, not going to the shops. What'd you learn? I learned a lot about myself and the company. I mean, I, everyone will have their own stories going into COVID, but um, you know, I was uh, I was in New Zealand at the time. It was really starting to develop. I was over there for some investor meetings and seeing family, and uh, landed back in Australia. And as I landed back off the phone, and my phone was going mad because whilst I'd been in transit, Jacinda had shut the borders into New Zealand. To you know, all travellers, yeah, and it was just like, you know, you think like this, this is so unreal. How could a prime minister do that? Particularly a country like New Zealand, so dependent on international visitors. And I was, you know, staggered. And then by Sunday, Morrison had done the same yeah. thing to Australia. Yeah. And of course, then you start to think, hell, this is like these. This is real. What's this going to mean for our business? Yep. Um, and then, like almost overnight, you've got airlines grounding. 
as I was saying before, no one's buying jet fuel. Yep. Grand Prix was cancelled. That's probably That's one, right. of the, one of the defi- I was going to the Grand Prix. So was I, actually. <laughs> yeah, so was I. <laughs> and, and we had guests and everything. All of a sudden, that was gone. And, and it, of course, it developed very quickly. Yep. And obviously, you know, we, I spoke before, we had obviously challenges around our refinery. But So, so, what, so what's going through your head? And they suddenly realize, okay, engine one shut down, engine two shut down. Yeah, and the share price halved, you know, as most companies did. And there's the unknown. You don't know where it's going to go, but you know it's going to be bad. The question is obviously in my mind is, you know, what's going to be the financial impact from this? What's going to be the impact on people? How are we going to manage the organization through the next period of time? And uh, you very quickly work out as CEO, like, you know, if you had any other plans, you haven't got any other plans anymore. Your number one job is to see your organization safely through what will be a difficult period of time. Uh, at that stage, you probably weren't thinking two years, but you're certainly thinking the rest of the year um, turned out to be to be much longer, and at times soon turned out to be more challenging than I thought it was. But also, in many areas, less challenging. In the end, we sort of found a way through it, and probably wasn't quite as bad as what I was anticipating at the time. I've always found in our business, you often have some crisis or something in yep. my career, and I think I always find you very quickly move into beyond worrying about what it means to actually just what steps can we take to see our way through this and obviously you get people around you and you start to make plans and then once you're making plans you obviously get get your confidence back and uh, just pick your way through it one of the things that drove me and constantly through that was just protecting our people and and both from a physical sense in terms of health but also an economic sense in keeping people employed it was my number one goal was to was to not be faced with a situation where we had to let people go now we did have to let some people go and and certainly the airports um, but for the most part even the refinery the driver was to was to see people through and hold the team together through COVID and uh, that was kind of the number one driver Um, and we were able to do that economically and sensibly and come out the back end as a result with an organization I think has come through it really well but I think really engaged with the organization because of the way we managed it and the way we were transparently talking to people about the challenges and also trying to help them with their own situations because of course everyone was facing their own uncertainties and their own yeah. challenges through that and I think the one things I kept reminding myself of through that time is that for every employee that's working for us there's probably a partner that's working for someone else that could actually be impacted in some way and lose their job or have challenges that are much more different than what our employees are facing so you've got to kind of at a family level it's not always what you see there's a bit more behind the scenes so trying to help people as much as possible through that time. What changed in terms of your leadership style Scott? Transparency. Um, I mean, I've always been pretty transparent. I mean, I think when, you know, the great thing about our company is that, you know, for all the the leverage that we have and the role that we play in providing energy security, we do it for a very small number of people. You know, our total organization is like 1,300 people, yet we supply 25% of the country's liquid fuel energy requirements. So it's an organization that's large enough to do that, but small enough that you can actually know a lot of the people. And after 35 years, obviously, I know a a lot of the people. So those relationships is part of what I enjoy working in the company, but it's also at times like through COVID that you can really use that because people, they know you, respect you, and and if you're transparent about where the business is at, the uncertainty, don't know, have all the answers, but it's not looking great in these areas and being and being transparent with people about how you're trying to deal with it um, and giving people regular updates, um, it got us through that period of time. And I was absolutely more open and honest with people than probably I've ever been before. Not that I'm not honest, but I think we were just doing it more regularly and more timely than, and less, you know, 
not worrying so much about the quality of the comms, just the regularity and being authentic with it, I think made a huge difference. Really, the investor community, how are you, how are you finding sa- them? A bit the same yeah. um, through that time as well. Yeah, I think it was challenging It was challenging for us thinking about the refinery and what's the right answer, um, particularly when it was losing tens of millions of dollars a I'll month. I'll come to that in a second because that was pretty, pretty scary looking at that. Yeah. So obviously investors worry about that too and so working closely with them so they understood how we were thinking about it and managing it and keeping their confidence that we were doing the right things um, I think was was something that we also worked hard at. It wasn't that challenging. I think we had a very supportive investor base, which we're fortunate as a company. So, uh, and have been with us, you know, a number of our investors have been with us for a long time. So that helped. Well, you want to talk us through the, the energy hub and the thinking behind that? Yeah, well, that was, uh, that was a COVID baby in some respects. I think when we... I mean, we faced into the challenges on round refining quite early in the piece because obviously demand dropped off very quickly. And so you kind of have this decision around, do we sort of flee from it or do we fight the problem? Because flee from it meaning let's give up and we should work to close the refinery because it's going to be so challenging. And it's going to- So this is the Geelong refinery? Yeah. So obviously that wasn't where I wanted to go. And so the alternative is let's, no, let's fight this and let's, let's look, think about not just the refinery, but what's the real asset we're trying to we're trying to save here and save because not just because of the people, but save because it actually has a role to play in the future of the company. The capability or the strengths that we have in Geelong is the location in terms of the ability to, to be able to bring energy into Victoria. We, we supply half of Victoria's energy already, so massive. Yep. It's well connected by pipelines and infrastructure into the rest of the state. Obviously, we've got 700 really capable people that work there and um, have a lot years of experience. We've got three generations of families in some cases working at Geelong. So real history there and pride in, in what we do. And the thinking was then, well, actually beyond refining, that can actually play a key role in broader areas of energy security and energy transition. So that that birthed the idea of the hub and uh, obviously the projects associated with that, which includes the, the gas import terminal. Yep, you want to talk through? Which is all about supporting, you know, filling uh, what is a growing gas deficit in the southern states, particularly Victoria, as the traditional gas fields dry up. Yep. Um, and Geelong refineries being built up off Bass Strait oil and gas. And historically, mm. a lot of our oil that came by pipeline from the Bass Strait. That's mm. declined over the years. Gas is going the same way and it's opening up quite a big shortfall. And we're seeing that play out in, in the short term today. Yep. So establishing the capability to bring gas from other parts of the country into Victoria in the same way that Europe's doing now, or looking to do to deal with the, the Russian gas mm. supply is bring gas into Europe from other parts of the world, exactly the same sort of project, um, and help fill that emerging gas short. And Geelong has its own port, its own wharf literally right outside the refinery where we can build a floating regasification unit to bring that gas into into the to the state. It's connected naturally directly into the the main gas pipeline because Geelong Refinery itself is a big user of gas. So it's, yes. there's a lot of synergies with what we do. And it's just a great example of how you can turn a problem into a, an opportunity by thinking a bit more broadly than the business that was under challenge at the time and think about future opportunities for the site to just give it more diversity and more strength, resilience going forward. Um, so we subsequently ended up working with government on strategic storage. So we're going to build some additional diesel storage at Geelong to support the government's desire to increase stocks in country. That's a natural, net, more natural fit yep. for us. But in terms of the transition, I mean, we do see gas as a transition fuel and it's a transition from coal into renewables over time. It plays a really good bridging role in that regard. But 
in terms of more direct renewables, you know, it's the it's the starting point for our hydrogen refueling network. Okay. We're building hydrogen manufacturing or production capability at Geelong uh, and a refueling station to support providing hydrogen to heavy vehicles, so buses and trucks around Geelong. We've got a we created an ecosystem with customers and also truck manufacturers to actually create the whole you know the whole ecosystem, so production, refueling, vehicles and customer demand around that site. Um, okay. It's the first in the country to do that. If successful, which I'm sure it will be, it'll sort of be the, the starting point of creating a network of refueling locations between Geelong and Sydney and then up to Brisbane on the major trucking routes in the country. So it's a good example of mm. how we can start to make the transition even on a traditional site like Geelong. Handling hydrogen is something we do every day in a refinery. It's a core product that gets used within the refinery system. So it's something we know and we can leverage that capability in, in terms of that that early development of that project. So yeah, it really caught the imagination of the organisation. Um, it helped people think about the future during some pretty difficult times through COVID, which I think was was really important to try and get people to look beyond what we see today and think about where we could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of the, the sort of projects that have developed have come from the organisation and from the people that work there. So it's only a legacy that I'll be particularly proud of, you know, when I do finally hang up the the boots, if you like, um, you know, to look back and see the refinery at Geelong continuing to prosper and, and all these other projects come to fruition and create that sort of broader energy hub will be something that, you know, I can look back on and say, well, I had a big part to play in that and, and through difficult times come out of it with something really positive for the organisation and the community in Geelong. What about fatigue, Scott? What did you learn about that during this period of time? I know it came up a lot in our discussions as a as a search firm. Board directors being fairly fatigued, CEOs working you know, 24-7, everyone working pretty much 24-7 there at one stage. How did you deal with it or who gave counsel to you? I think because of the nature of the challenge, you kind of overcome that. I, I, I think I felt the fatigue at the end, So yeah, if there was an end, but <laughs> certainly the back end of last year, yeah. um, you know, I was starting to feel over it and not just physically but you know but mentally as mm. well i think during the heat of it as you do through most crises you find the energy that you need to get through it and and so that sustained me the challenge but you know it helped me overcome what was actually quite an enduring period of time and look i, I think no doubt it was the same for my team as well we haven't specifically spoken about it but i know that everyone felt tired coming out mm. of the back end of last year and it was kind of good to be able to close the, the book on it a little bit and move forward and start to plan with more certainty and get back to reconnecting with people which has been a big feature of this year so so what's the spirit of the company now oh look it's really positive i mean i think most companies that i've certainly dealt with i think everyone's handled it actually pretty well yeah um, engagement i think you know has for most companies have gone up through that time because of the way companies have handled it seem to be the case for our organization I think having this growth agenda and a vision for the future, which we were able to reset last year with investors and with the organisation, was really positive. It seemed to be very um, well received too. Yeah, no, I think you know, people are excited about where we're heading. Coming out of a difficult time, that's been a really you know important thing to do is to be able to reset that with people. Now, no one, to be honest, I didn't expect to come out of one crisis and then enter straight into another in terms of you know the conflict in Ukraine. But yeah. uh, that's the nature of the world at the moment, unfortunately. You're up seven percent last year. Is that right on sales? Yes, it depends on the on the sector that you're in. So some sectors are still still got a way to recover. Obviously, like aviation is still in a recovery mode. Yes, um, it is. Yeah, international's still a while to come. 
Uh, retail markets are still well down. Um, okay. So people are, and that's just a factor of probably oil pricing, yep. but also a factor of working from home. I mean, this is a, a transition that we, we're also having to try and make as well as what's the right model to move forward with um, in terms of flexible working. With most companies I sit down with at the moment, that's what everyone's talking about is like, how do I get people back to the offices and how do I recreate the sort of the vibe that we had pre-COVID um, that's hard to do if you haven't got people. All right. Well, you're the CEO. So what's what's the answer? What are you guys doing? I'm uh, trying very hard to, um, to make it work and let the organization evolve it a little bit rather than forcing people back. We know from our own polling that people are really enjoying the freedom and flexibility that comes from choosing when they work, where they work, and obviously how they work as well. Getting the productivity? We're getting the productivity. I mean, we're doing more today than we've yeah, you know, we've done more in the last couple of years, to be honest, than we probably did before. So there'll be pockets where maybe that's not the case. But I think for the most part, I don't worry too much about that. I do worry about the cultural aspects, which mm. which most companies worry about, and the informal conversations that come when you've got people in a face-to-face setting. But but to be frank, we had some of that before. I mean, I can remember um, pre-COVID and bumping into people in one side of the building that had never met people on the other side of the building. So it's not like that wasn't a problem previously mm. it's it's a different way it's still a problem it's just the solutions are perhaps slightly different but i think to make it work you've kind of two things have to happen you've got to really trust your people to be doing the right thing wherever they happen to work we have built a lot of trust around that over the last couple of years so i don't want you know i wouldn't want to erode that i think that's been a really positive uh, outcome for the company and i think you've got to set an environment where people want to come back and work in the office from time, rather than being forced to come back. So if the employees see the value in coming back and you've know, created the environment where that is valuable to them, and they'll make those choices themselves without being told what to do. And if you can get that dynamic working uh, well, I think that's a huge cultural benefit. It's a huge competitive advantage in a, in a tight market when you're trying to Absolutely. recruit the best talent. If you can yep. achieve Everything you want to achieve as a business and provide that environment and that level of flexibility for people, you have a huge competitive advantage relative to companies that um, are forcing people to do things that might get people back to the office, but gets them there physically, not necessarily in spirit. So that's what we're trying to do. I, and I think that's what I would like to, to see happen. It'll, we'll let it evolve for a bit longer this year and see where we get to. But. Yeah, look, what about the younger generation who's you know, ambitious in their career? Are they coming back or... Is middle management coming back to take care of them as they come through? That's, yeah, where, look, I, that's where I think it's been interesting to look at. Some of the young people are coming back, but middle management hasn't always turned up. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see whether where where responsibility is in that in that regard. Yeah, you've got this generational piece, and, and, yeah. and clearly flexible working means different things to people at different phases of their lives, Correct. and whether they've got kids at home and, and families, it just means different things. And, yep. um, but my experience so far in talking to some of the, the grads and young people, they're actually enjoying the flexibility as well. So they're not feel, I don't just get the sense that they're feeling like they're missing out or that there's this huge desire to be working at the office more often than we are and therefore, and but then it'll just make that effective. They need more people there to actually get that impact. So, mm-hmm. but um, that doesn't mean that doesn't exist. And I think we've, you've got to get, it is a hybrid model that I think you've got to get to and uh, that's what we're trying to work to. We've been talking about COVID and you've talked about the last two years. What's leadership to you then? I think what I learned, I mean, it's not, not nothing new, but I think what I learned from, from COVID is that in any period of great, great change is that people just want some predictability, someone they can trust um, that's going to do the right thing or do the best they can to support 
people through whatever the change happens to be and has a vision for for where we're heading and articulating that and you know that was I guess the benefit of the level of frequency and transparency that we had I think played a, a really important role and it's not rocket science it's all pretty straightforward but um, yeah, but not that's, what, that's, what people, right. that's what people want, right? And I think yeah. one yeah, of the, you, you communicated more than you've ever communicated, I'm sure, haven't you? Yeah, I have. And I think one of the things that has changed for me in that time as a leader, and I think it's probably the same for a lot of leaders, is that because people have gone through so much change, because it's impacted people quite a bit personally, and because we've been so transparent and honest, you know, talked about a lot of different issues with people, increasingly people are, are looking for CEOs to have a perspective on what's happening around the world okay. so you know war breaks out in ukraine what do you think about it as a ceo and and i would always you know we all have views but they're not always views that i would go and share in public in public yep but that's what people are looking for now you're the leader of the company what do you actually think about this when i did write out about the war in ukraine and we had some connection with it in the sense we had some cargoes accrued coming from russia and unfortunately that's the way, the way things happen so we you know, had something to say and and you know it was it was horrific, and I had my own personal views on that as well. And we ex- I expressed that early on to the organisation, top of what we're doing about the connections that we had with Russia at the time. I got an email back from you know one of our team saying, "Well, it's great that you're you're talking about what's happening in Ukraine, but what about my people?" And what he meant by my people was what's happening in Afghanistan, what's happening in Yemen, right? And you go, "Wow, I didn't even have that on my radar, and I probably haven't." got necessarily i've got views on that but i wouldn't have even thought about expressing it but it was really important to that person so what did you do did you have, did you express a view or, did you, or was it opening up a can of worms no i mean i obviously connected with that person and had a conversation around or just understand better about where it was coming from and um and so i've had the opportunity with the earthquakes most recently in afghanistan to actually to talk about that in the context of just the broader issues around the world so you, you kind of you learn from it and you find the opportunity in a genuine way to not necessarily directly respond to that that feedback but it's part of recognizing that you know people don't just want to know what the company is doing or what the purpose of the company is they want to actually understand the leaders better and why should i work for a, what do you as a person think about things because that's ultimately a big part of their lives because you set the tone and you set the culture of of the company and that wasn't there to the same extent two or three years ago, that sort of expectation, I don't think, and that's come from being more open and people learning more about you and having that thirst to understand a little bit more. It doesn't mean they agree with you. I think that's fine, um, and people won't. In a population of 1,400 people, there's going to be things I communicate that people won't agree with, but I think if you're doing it in a respectful way and it helps them understand who you are and what you stand for as a person, they can decide whether that's for them as a, an employee or not. But yeah, that's been a change for me in that time. Um, and I think probably the other thing that's that's come out of it is just people's genuine acceptance of change has really evolved, I think, because uh, people have lived through so much things that you would never have thought would have happened. It's like my experience coming back from New Zealand and finding they shut the borders. I mean, they never, that, that would never have happened, and then a whole bunch of other things happened that I thought would never have happened as well. Uh, I think we're, as a, a leader, we've got much more capability now to make more changes than we would have ever made before because people are ready for it and they're used to the way you've talked about it and and the way you go about it. So that's positive because we are going through the next 10 years, a period of massive change. So we need people to be ready for that. And I think that's been a good outcome. Expenditure, consumers up there, they're all 
pretty excited about the future? I don't think they're excited about the cost of petrol at the moment at all. And uh, quite understandably, I mean, it's going to, it's putting obviously significant pressures on probably people that can least afford it as well. And that's, that's the global challenge. I think a lot of the impacts of Ukraine are big and impacting people heavily, but it's going to impact the poorest of the world the most. And uh, I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges we face over the next 12 months is how do you carry you know, the poorest through this crisis and, and see them out the other side, and it's going to be very difficult. So in our own way in Australia, we'll have some of those challenges. Obviously, government has a role to play in that in terms of how they manage things like excise recovery and general support for cost of living. We obviously need to be mindful of that, but at the same time, in our business, we're operating in a in a global market and subject to what global prices are, so there's not a lot we can do as a company. But but that's certainly something on my mind a lot is just that that general inflationary pressures and, yes. and cost of living and how do we get through that over the next next period of time in the most sensible way. So what are you thinking, Scott? How bad is it going to be in the next next 12 months? I don't know. It's just so hard to predict. I mean, we, we've we sort of come into this period since the end of February. Yeah. It's, it's literally only been a few months and it's already been a massive disruption, a massive change. Um, some of these inflationary pressures were already there as a result of COVID, but they've all been amplified as a result of the war in Ukraine. And it's how long does that go for? And even if it does find some sort of settlement, how long do the sanctions continue for? I think those are all unknown at this point in time. And it makes it hard from a planning point of view. I mean, we're spending a lot of our time now starting to think about scenarios and what ifs and how do we protect our business in terms of different situations. But it's difficult to know the answer. Are we taking oil or gas from uh, from Russia at the moment? No, no. So we- As a nation, we've said no or- Yeah, government put an embargo on. We we acted before that in terms of the cargoes that we had coming and drew a line. There was no no more purchases from, from Russia and uh, and that's been the case you know, since March. So Okay. A couple of goals. So what's going to happen with the relationship with Coles? One thing I was going to ask. And secondly, longer term, uh, net zero emissions by 2030. Yep. Achievable? I'll start with that one. So- <laughs> Uh, it's easily achievable for us. I mean, I think we, we talk about uh, our scope one and two emissions, which is the emissions that we create as an organisation. And we said for our non-refining business that will be net zero by 2030. So that's retail and commercial and head offices and our terminals, et cetera. The refinery, we, we haven't set that time frame. We've said net zero across the whole business by 2050. And that's because the nature of the refining business is it's hugely emissions intensive. Um, we need to see out the contract we've got for government to run the refinery for the next 10 years and then determine what the next 10 years looks like. And mm-hmm. and at some point, there will be a transition of the refinery uh, over that period between now and 2050 to be doing less of what it does today and repurposing it, if you like, into uh, a more renewable focus. And that'll be the time to really address the direct emissions that come from that um, for that process. And I think that's sensible because if we were to no longer refine, which is probably the easiest way of obviously reducing your emissions, all you're yeah. doing is offshoring your emissions to another refinery overseas. So that makes no sense for anybody. Yes. So, um, But I think, look, in the scheme of our business, the, the biggest area of emissions is scope three. So that's the emissions that come from the products that we sell mm. by far. Um, yeah. And our scope three emissions is essentially our customers' scope one emissions. The real meaningful way that we can support reduction emissions is actually working with our customers on new solutions like hydrogen to help them reduce their emissions. That's where we'll make the most impact and that's where we need to continue to spend more time. So in terms of our commitments for our own emissions, I think that's actually relatively straightforward. The harder part is is helping our customers meet theirs and that's 
that's where we need to spend more and more of our time. Um, Coles has been a great partner for a long time. Um, we've been involved with them since we set up the alliance in 2003. Mm. So it's probably been one of the longest standing corporate partnerships, I think, in Australia, to to be frank. Um, and it's been served a really useful purpose where we focus on our core competency of selling fuel. They focus on theirs in terms of offering a convenience yep. um, offer and obviously leveraging their broader supermarket capability. Fast forward the end of this decade, we do believe it's far more important for us to take control of all of the offerings across the site. And that means we've got to build the capability to do what they do today. But in doing that, then bring the fuel and convenience together and yes. be able to really then take control and transition our business into something different. And we can't do that in in the models that we're in at the moment. And there's just that end of the life cycle in terms of that that partnership. And we need to find a way to, um, and, and we seem to take that back. And obviously we've we've set that up with them with the contract ending in 2029. So there's a time horizon and that will occur. But that's part of our transition for the retail business, right? So um, it's, a, it's a really important part of our strategy. And um, obviously the relationship still got some time to go, but, um, mm-hmm. um, but we'll ultimately work together on that transition. Bearing in mind what's happening in, I guess, geopolitics. So we've got, well, how many refineries have you got in this country? Two now. Two. Are we smart in who we're partnering with externally in bringing in? Necessary surplus um, in terms of the the non in terms of the the imports that yeah, we yeah the eighty percent that you mentioned earlier yeah I think um, every company does that in their own way everyone has their own supply chains um, we work with our one of our shareholders so Vitol is our yeah. supplier of all of our imported fuels and crudes uh, they are accountable for about seven percent of the world's ore flow so yeah, big, big trader yeah. Um, so that works well for us because they've got good scale, good presence in, in our market, which is the sort of Asia-Pac market, and and can help us acquire the crude oil that we need and the and the refined products that we need. But they also bring a whole lot of experience around energies generally and in their own way, their energy transition, because they're also you know, embarking on a big energy transition journey for themselves. So it's so a good partner. Other players in the market will buy directly from refineries or have their own trading teams up in the markets and... Uh, and for the most part, you know, most of our refined f- products come from close economic partners of Australia in any, ca- any case, so Japan, Singapore, um, South Korea. Um, so, you know, they're all strong economic partners of, of Australia. So I think in that sense, I answer your question, it's very sensible and yeah. uh, I think quite safe supply chains. But having the diversity of imports and refineries is, I think, an important mix to have. And, and as a nation, I guess, I'm just walking your thoughts on this. Joe Blow, the consumer out there, is paying a lot of money, as you said earlier, just for for energy. Uh, we seriously got this right, or we need to do we need to rethink this as a nation? We're sitting on some of the best energy opportunities in the world. We haven't even discussed the likes of uranium yet. Where do you think the dialogue is at at, at the moment? Yeah, look, I think um, we have obviously a huge level of natural resources and energy. So whether it's obviously certainly in hydrocarbons, with yep. with certainly with gas and coal, but most likely in renewables as well. I mean, if the, if the, lack of the, the amount of solar yep. that we have to create electricity or hydrogen, you know, it's it's massive. We're a very advantaged locationally in so many areas, and you know, we should be using that absolutely to drive economic success um, within our world. And I think that's part of why, coming back to where we started this conversation, yes. is why long-term strong energy policy is so critical to the nation. I mean, energy drives everything that we do, and. It should be one of the most important policies that we spend time on. So, 
and you do need so to and you do need to look out and you need to look you need to look out beyond political terms. Yeah, exactly. That's so the so just on that, we chop and change every three years. Yeah. Okay. So is there documentation or a real strategy for the next 20, 30, 40 No, I years? think we've, we've we used to have that. Yeah. When to be honest, when renewables were less of a feature of it, and it was more traditional energies, and yeah. there certainly was strong. Um, policies framework that got largely handed from one side of government to the other and was consistent. And, yep. that, and that's driven a lot of the investment that provides, you know, the economic success we have today as a country. But um, that's that's lost a bit because the energy's got more fragmented and the debate has got very... Um, polarising in that yeah, sense? Polarized, yeah, polarised, yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so um, big challenge for government is to try and bring that together and I think try and do it in a bipartisan way that therefore you can develop policy frameworks that will survive the test of time. Exactly what we achieved with the refinery uh, sector package. It was a bipartisan, it was supported on both sides of politics and provides absolute certainty now for the next decade. So if you can achieve that in the other areas of energy that are increasingly important to the country, then that will help drive, I think, a more sensible outcome and more success in the future and leverage the huge resources that we have. So Scott, what does the government need to do? What do they need to do to achieve this? Because you're talking about the growth of this country. We've got immigration we're going to bring back in. Mm. We, we're trying to encourage innovation. We're here nonstop. Uh, maybe we could be you know, a hub for better technology, but you've got to fund it and you've got to turn the thing on. Yeah. But we haven't got the energy to do it or it's costing us a fortune. That's going offshore tomorrow. So what does business need to do or how is business going to get government to actually commit to something more than you know the next election? Well, I think business business is very supportive of investing in renewables and, and making transition. I mean, every company that we're involved with, um, either suppliers or with customers, is absolutely focused on okay. this. So I think from a in terms of tapping into momentum within business, it's absolutely that's, that's, absolutely that's there. Okay, yeah. right. Okay. But obviously, you know, people want to know if you start to make serious investment, you yeah. need to know what that, that, that looks like. There's some certainty around yeah. making that investment in yeah. terms of the environment that you're playing into. So starting to set some targets and is, is a good thing and, and you know transition to things like electric vehicles and what is going to be, uh, what is the policy framework around supporting that actual transition and, and then how do you do that and how's that going to be managed at the same time as supporting the traditional energy so that there's the disruptions that we see today are minimized. I yes. think that's the sort of, Ultimately, there's big decisions that need to be taken around all of that. Yep. And obviously, government of the day can do that. But ideally, you want it to know that the opposition is supportive of that going forward as well, so that you've got multi-parliamentary periods with some certainty in that. So um, I think it's not not easy at all because it's become so polarised and uh, no one wants to support the other's policies. So I think that's a big problem. And if you look offshore, based on your international experience, um, who is doing that well? Like which countries you think are thinking 20, 30 years out and have uh, drawn up the right, I guess, uh, strategy well, and brought business on board? I think there's very few, right? That's the problem. Um, yeah, okay. You know, no, look, we'll, what's look what's happening in Europe. I mean, they've been caught out as well. Okay, different different circumstances, but yep. be massively caught out. It's not something unique to Australia, and I don't think we should beat ourselves up too much about it as well. And I think, unlike Europe, we can fall back, though, onto we have got the raw natural resources and so we still have a strong foundation. It's just how do we leverage that in a sensible way? Yeah, but we give a lot of those natural resources away, don't we? 
Yeah, but that's, we, we don't, we we don't give them, them, we don't give them away. We sell, we, we sell them. We sell yeah, them. And, we sell them yeah. and so that's, that's and we buy them back. Yes, in different forms, but <laughs> yes. But we should know, but we should celebrate that as well. When you think we, about it, don't you think? Which there's parts of that we should celebrate. We do have enough to supply not only our own needs but also the world, and yeah. we it's a, a significant export earner for the country and, and an important role that we play in supporting the world as well. And I think we've got to get the balance right between home needs and and international needs. So bearing in mind where your your company is at, and you're the leader of this company in one of the most interesting markets there is. In terms of innovation, how do you go about it? Do you have a, a team that you bring in or do you bring in, uh, do you have a, a innovation hub in that sense or like, how do you stimulate that sort of thinking? Yeah. Because you're looking, a, like you say, you're looking a long way over the hill. Hmm. Big investment. Yep. It's very hard to set strategy at the moment because it's so uncertain what you're playing into. And uh, I find it one of the most complex challenges at the moment is, you know, what's the right pathway to take going forward? And we're not a company that can take a single big bet on any one thing, no. right? Because if, if, if we get it wrong, it's like like the ending <laughs> of the organisation. So we need to be doing a number of different things, but we also need to be doing making sure that they're sensible and that they're able to be commercialised and and uh, and not just you know doing them because it sounds good and it resonates well for the for now, but it won't actually it won't play well in the future because it's not actually going to deliver a commercial outcome. You've got to get you've got to do both and. Uh, Things like the example I gave before around setting a vision around, say, an energy hub and then letting people work out what that means mm. has been quite helpful because yeah. there's a lot of, you know, it's people- It's been well received, hasn't it? People in the organization do have ideas and they have a lot to contribute and you provide enough of the vision to help them fill the dots in. And, and a number of things that we're working on at the moment have just have been organically developed by people in the organization that have brought forward ideas and, and we've found- you know, they've got legs and we have supported them and, and they, may, they may or may not come to fruition, but we'll certainly give them a good shot. Uh, hydrogen refueling station is a great example of yeah. that. Yeah. And as an investor, what am I wanting from you in the team? Yeah, investors typically want two things. They, they see our business as a mature business um, that as a mature business has the ability to c- deliver good cash returns to investors for relatively low levels of capital investment because you're uh, you've got a you've got your the investments already been made so we are a strong cash generator but at the same time they you know obviously see the need for us to also make the transition and participate in the transition to renewable energies but do that in a sensible way where you are investing in the right areas in a balanced way and a risk managed way but absolutely contributing to that transition and not just sitting sitting back and, and relaxing and, and strong cash returns. On the renewables energy, is the pressure too hard out there at the moment on people like yourself or on organisations like yourself? You know, we're seeing stuff in the press. Um, in recent times, AGL was an interesting one. Do you think it's been well thought through or do you think it just that the market in general is just pushing it too hard and too fast? Or do you think we are going about it at the right tempo? Is it too much? I don't know. I think the pressure should absolutely be there though because okay. like this is the, um, you know, the energy transition is probably one of the biggest challenges facing the world today, yeah. and um, and I accept the need that we have. You know, we need to move quickly because it will take longer than we think, and uh, okay. and longer than we hope potentially. And so, I think that pressure should absolutely be brought to bear. I mean, that's that's our job is to to manage that. And so that pressure comes from you know it comes from investors, it comes from customers, it comes from employees. In my business. You know, if I haven't got that sort of vision and not seen to be moving with pace, 
I will find it harder and harder to employ people. For the sake of all about purpose, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. People want to work for a company that has a purpose, and we have a purpose, but has meaningful plans to, to act on it. And energy transition is one of the key elements of that purpose for a lot of employees, particularly younger generation. Uh, and we need to, you know, if we want to make that transition, we need to be employing younger people in the company that have the whole future ahead of them and also the ideas and and runway of their careers to actually go and deliver on it. Um, and so if we, we don't do that, we'll just die. That's the reality. So Okay. And as a CEO, who do you um, bounce your ideas off? Because it's pretty lonely at the top, isn't it? It's very lonely at the top at times. <laughs> um, it's like very – so I rely on my team a lot, right? So, yeah, I'm like any CEO. Your exec team is absolutely critical yep. to you. And obviously you get the opportunity to pick them, so you, you pick people that you'll – you know that will not just do their job but add value to and support you and what you need from them. Um, the board obviously is important. I mean, that's the, the key. You know, and so obviously the relationship between CEO and chair has been well spoken about and yep. absolutely critical. But the board more generally is really important. But on a day-to-day basis, you know, that interaction you have with your team is, is key. Um, I enjoy getting out and talking to – I really do get and enjoy getting out and talking to people deeper in the organisation as well. We have a pretty open organisation. People don't seem to be afraid to give feedback on what's going well and what's not going well. And um, they seem, you know, for the most part, quite relaxed to tell me what they're thinking as well. So that really helps, you know, it's another data point, but it really helps me as a leader and reflecting on you know, how I can do better and what people are looking for as well from the company in terms of their careers and where the company can go. So. Now that we're back, you know, it was a bit hard in the last couple of years, but yep. now we're back out and about again. That's, you know, I'm really enjoying getting back and doing that. Okay. So we're coming out of that dark time of COVID. It's in the light of you know, excitement and energy. And as you say, it's probably the biggest game in town at the moment. Yeah. What are you looking for in terms of people to join you? What's the sort of pedigree, the competencies, the drive, the ambition? What do you, as a CEO, what are you looking to surround yourself with? Um, so across the organisation, it's obviously different in different areas. Um, I will say one thing I'm really worried about is the availability of skills in certain sectors, right? So for example, we don't, we don't employ truck drivers ourselves, but we obviously rely heavily on trucking companies to deliver fuel to customers. Like the average age of truck drivers in our sector is 56. That's and right. every year it gets another year older, right? So like yeah, right. The, at some point, Unless something changes, like there'll be no one driving trucks, and so this is generational thing, right? So yeah, young right. young people are not choosing to enter career path. Yeah. Perhaps they don't need to because there's so many job opportunities around. But it's something you know, there are whole job skills, I guess, that are not as attractive to people as they used to be. And um, to sustainability of our business, we absolutely need to overcome that. But then it's not just our sector; that's other other sectors as well where you see that. So. Uh, longer term, those those sorts of things worry me. I think part of the solution is the work we all need to do on improving the representation of women across the workforce, because that's a whole population of employees that are just not working in some of the areas where we're really struggling. So that's just a natural place to look for a start. But it's also part of the work we need to do to bridge the gender pay gap and increase the representation across all levels and types of jobs across the company. And so that's an area that I certainly have quite a bit of passion for and and we're working quite hard in, in our organisation, but obviously um, beyond our organisation as well. And How are you going in attracting? We're going well. I think a good example is in our refinery. Um, okay. You know, we have a big operator group in, in Geelong, sort of 200 operators that run the, run the kit. That's predominantly been uh, a male job. Very few women working in that part, single, single digit 
percentages in that part of the business. We've been quite active in, in trying to make those jobs more attractive, make them more flexible to bring women into the, into the organisation and del- deliberately go- going out and seeking candidates, um, female candidates to come and join us. You know, we're now at 25% representation and it's a noticeable difference in, you know, so 50 out of the 200 you know, female workers and uh, it shows that if you're determined enough and you put enough time into it, you can achieve it. And they're great jobs, right? I mean, these are well-paid jobs, they're well-skilled build life skills beyond working for us if they choose to and um, to be able to provide those opportunities and make them available to to more women has been a, a you know a, something I'm particularly proud of in terms of the work that we've done but it's it's just one one example and there's, there's a lot of work to be done in many other areas of our business and, and more broadly outside as well so for those out there listening what is the most exciting do you think element in working in energy today then oh the transition is by far and I think in, in the current climate, I think the role in providing energy security, I mean, it motivates me because I, I know how important it is to the economy and how important it is to people's lives. And I don't think people think about it because you take it for granted. You know, you take it for granted there's going to be fuel in the service station when you fill up your car, the, when you turn the lights on, the lights are actually going to switch on. But uh, making that happen is actually, there's a lot that goes into it. You know, it's provided me a really rich career um, and I think it provides exactly the same opportunities to new people joining the organisation, but amplify because it's going to change so dramatically in 10 years as well. And to be part of that change and helping to determine how we make an energy transition and how our company plays a role in that is, I think, incredibly exciting. As you look at the world today, and it is a somewhat turmoil, what do you see for the Australian economy in the next three, six months, and well, maybe the next couple of years? Is it going to change a great deal? I'm always confident and optimistic about the Australian economy. Um, you know, I think we have, as we touched on before, so many natural resources. I think a, a really confident population, um, some great innovation and entrepreneurs in the country as well. And so I, I think it's still a land of great opportunity. And I do believe we'll come out of the current challenges in good shape. We have come out of COVID in pretty good shape. You know, despite what was you know a bit bumpy, right? Uh, compared to a lot of other countries around the world, I think we'll come out of the uh, energy crisis or the Ukraine. You know, the sort of knock-on effects of a conflict in Ukraine, ultimately, pretty well as well. And um, oh, you think so, do you? Yeah, I do. Um, okay. I mean, I think some of the challenges we're seeing in energy at the moment are, will be overcome. I think it's been a good wake-up call to the country and to politicians about how fragile our current energy system is but i think yeah. we can we can overcome that as well and i think with some sensible policies going forward so um, come out of all of that and and then hopefully feed into a world that's in recovery at some point in time then we should benefit from that i think you know i think it's still a, it's a land of great opportunity i think and the fundamentals are pretty strong now, Scott, if you're looking back at that young man who had that rabbit farm all those all those years ago, <laughs> went to that interview and got that job as you walked out the, out the front door, what advice would you looking back at him right now would you give him? I, I I would do exactly. I mean, there's a lot of things I would do differently in terms of things I've done through my career. But I mean, broadly, I, you know, I feel very fortunate to have had the career that I've had, and uh, uh, and I think. The way it evolved, some of it, you know, just accidentally, but I think has given me an enormous lot of, you know, range of experiences and opportunities. And I think one of the things looking back that I always did was was just take every opportunity 
that I was given um, and trust the people that were giving them to me that they knew a little bit about what they were doing. And so that saw me do different jobs, saw me move to different places in New Zealand and overseas. And and that's all, you know, not all of that was promotion. Some of it was just sideways moves or, you know, different, different development opportunities. And I took every one and got the most out of it that I could. And I would do every single job that I've done over again uh, through that career. And it's got, given me the opportunity I've had got today to, to lead a company through most remarkable period of time. I mean, yeah, if you absolutely. think about it, I went, you know, Went from being involved in a multinational company, having a whole career there, to then moving across as a CEO, working for you know, private owners um, and running a private company for a period of time, which is a very different, very different environment than working in a multinational. Uh, and then doing something I've never done before in terms of listing the company in two parts, really, because we listed the the service stations and then listed the uh, the operating company. I mean, those are massive undertakings, and uh, you know, to be able to be involved in that, learn from that and lead the company through it was a fabulous period of time. I wouldn't give up the last 10 years for anything. It's been fantastic. Scott, it's been a real pleasure for you joining us today. Thank you very much for coming in. Thanks very much for having me. It's been great. On that, you've been listening to No Limitations. 